This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now because we get to talk to Sky Jathani about heaven. Someone named Sky writing about heaven. It just works. It's it's perfect. Most of you know who Sky Jathani is. He is an award-winning author, former pastor, speaker, co-host of the Holy Post podcast, and he's written all kinds of books. I don't even know how many. But this series is the What If Jesus Was Serious About Various Things. And today we're going to talk about What If Jesus Was Serious About Heaven. Sky, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Russell. I'm really glad to be back. You know, I I want to talk in a few minutes about uh, what the Bible says about heaven. But before we do that, I, I want to kind of look at what does American culture think about heaven? When you go to a funeral... People are always going to say, he's in a better place, she's in a better place. But a lot of the time, you think that's because they don't really know what else to say. Do you think people really believe in heaven, or is it just a comfort now and then for folks? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it probably depends on where you are. Uh In, In heavily churched areas or where there's a strong Christian cultural heritage, 
probably they believe in some kind of heaven, whether or not it's a biblical understanding of heaven is mm-hmm. a separate question. And yet I've been in other communities that are highly secular, that are post-Christian, that they might say something like, well, they're in a better place, but it's this amorphous kind of platitude where I'm not sure they actually believe that. It's more of a, a word of comfort in a moment when people tend to be grieving. But I think there are plenty of folks in our culture who are deeply skeptical about any claim to an afterlife. And you see that in some of our values and behaviors and the way people are living. It's kind of, you know, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die is the posture. So anything of talk of heaven is more just comfort and platitude rather than I think a deeply held conviction. What about in American popular culture? If you think about imagery of heaven in the good place, for instance, but you can go backward from there to all kinds of things. How do you think that's affected the way that we think about heaven? I don't know if this is cultural or if it's just innate to our human species, but we have a desire for justice. And I think every every community, every nation, every religious group has some sense that there's judgment. There should be judgment. Mm-hmm. And we carry that then into our cultural view of heaven, which is, well, if you've done enough good, you'll be rewarded. And if you've done enough bad, you'll be punished. And we always want to believe people from our own families or communities or whatever are probably on the good side of that scale. And so there's Mm -hmm. this cultural assumption that if you've died and you've generally received as as a positive, good person, you will be rewarded in some way. And that gets carried out in our television and movies and platitudes about the afterlife. Again, very little of it, I think, informed or grounded by scripture. What about the people who claim to have had near death experiences? And I'm not just talking about sort of the people who are selling books in Christian bookstores Mm -hmm. talking about their time in heaven, but a lot of people who will say, and they'll, they'll speak of a very similar experience of sort of going through a tunnel of light. There's some people who would say, well, that's neurology. How, How do you see it? Well, I think there's two different issues there. One, I actually have a chapter in this book about the heaven tourism phenomenon Mm -hmm. and and Christian publishing and some of the movies that have been made. And my problem with it, there's multiple problems I have with it, but one of them is I think when we rely on those kinds of testimonies, whether we think they're authentic or not, we are often relying on extra biblical authority. We are saying what God has provided for us in scripture isn't enough, and I need to know something more. Similarly, from more secular sources, when you get all the the near-death experience stuff and the light at the end of the tunnel, kind of, I don't know. I have no idea whether that's just a biological, neurological phenomenon, if it's something spiritual. I just don't know. But the moment I hang my hat on any of those experiences as somehow carrying authority, I am going beyond what God and his providence has chosen to reveal in his scriptures. And so I'm, in a way, saying God didn't give me enough and I need more to really have hope or security or comfort in the face of death. And I think as a Christian, that's that's a lack of faith in God rather than a trust in God. So you, you think about the picture that most people have, church people, unchurch people, just take the lowest common denominator. You die, you go and register with St. Peter <laughs> right. or whoever's waiting at the gate. You then go in and have a lot of singing your own house. What's what's right and wrong in the way we think about heaven? I'm pretty sure everything you just said is wrong. Everything. Okay. Yeah, pretty much everything. 
I mean, the beginning, to go all the way back to the beginning, Russell, and you know this, I mean, goodness, you're, you're a seminary prof and you know the Bible and scriptures probably far better than I do. The idea that we associate heaven solely with the afterlife is already a problem. Heaven is not just the abode of the dead after they've departed from their body. Scripture mm -hmm. speaks of heaven as a present reality, and it is a realm that is all around us as much as the atmosphere is around us. I mean, in biblical language, both in Hebrew and Greek, the word for sky, you mentioned my name earlier, the word for the air, the word for you know the realm of the stars and moon and sun, and the realm of God and spiritual beings, those are all referred to as the heavens. And so the fact that we in our English modern cultural use of that word only tend to speak of the realm where the dead go is already a severe limitation on what scripture has to say about heaven. And then all the other stuff, I mean, from Jesus' farewell address in John, where we get a really poor translation from the King James Version, we get this idea of him building mansions. So none of that is actually speaking about heaven or even the afterlife. In all of the farewell discourse in John's gospel, Jesus never mentions heaven at all. But that's what we assume he's talking about, even though it's never stated. And so whether it's the mansions or, you know, St. Peter checking us in, which is from Matthew 18 and Jesus giving Peter the keys of the kingdom, all those assumptions mm -hmm. then get played into this cultural framework of heaven, which doesn't hold up to biblical scrutiny. My students always got in trouble for saying the word afterlife, e even referring to the life post-death and post-resurrection, because for me, it was always sort of like calling a marriage the afterlove. <laughs> the, the life continues, and this, this isn't sort of a looking back on real life, and now exactly. we're... <laughs> yeah, we're, Dallas Willard. Dallas, Dallas would often say your eternal life with Christ has already started if mm -hmm. you, you know, your faith in him. So it's not like we have this life and then we die and then we have this afterlife and eternity with God. It's no, your, your eternal life with God has already started and that will continue if you belong to Christ without end. Well, I can imagine there's somebody listening to this who's a follower of Jesus, but who says, well, if heaven has already started in my life, it's terrible. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, it, we, we look through a glass darkly, as Paul mm. says in 1 Corinthians 13. Like, we still have these bodies which are decaying. And, you know, he talks about jars of clay or vessels that are decaying even as the glory is increasing. Yeah, we live in this already not yet paradox. So it isn't to say that everything is as it should be. It isn't. We are waiting for the day when Christ returns and, and the world is remade and, and set free from its curse and we will share in his glory and the world share in ours. That's all yet to come, but that doesn't mean our life with God hasn't started. It has, and our communion with him has started. As flawed as it may be because of our ongoing struggles with sin and the world's depravity, but it's already started and we don't have to wait for death to develop that deep intimacy and communion with God now. How does one do that? Well, there's multiple ways one does that, but the most important way is through putting our faith in Christ and receiving his Holy Spirit, which regenerates us to life so that we can live in communion with him. And then it's an ongoing process of continuing to foster that life through the renewing of our mind, Paul talks about in, in Romans 12. That's through scripture, through communion with the spirit, through prayer, through participation in the church with our sisters and brothers in Christ, in engagement with sacraments like the Lord's table and baptism. It's all of those 
good things that we have inherited in Christ through his word, through his spirit, through his people and his church that develop and grow our communion with him as at the same time we put off the sin that so easily entangles us and prevents us from experiencing deeper communion with him. So all of that is in preparation for the day when everything that hinders that communion is removed and we may experience it in its fullness. But we shouldn't have to wait for that day to develop that communion and deepen it even now. Why is it hard? It, it's, it's really difficult to be able to, to, to Colossians 3, set one's mind on, on what is with Christ rather than on earthly things. It, we're just constantly distracted. Even when we're not sitting, we're just distracted with all sorts of things. Why is that so difficult? You yeah, know? and you know, that's a, I'm glad you make the distinction between just being distracted and being full of sin. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we don't have a nuanced understanding of that. There are lots of things I do every day in my life which are not sinful, but may not be helping me in my communion with God. And that's... I. Th one of the things that I've always been struck by is when Moses encounters the burning bush at Sinai and, and mm -hmm. the Lord speaks to him from the bush and he says, remove your sandals, the ground where you are walking is holy ground. And, and obviously Moses was given a very special revelation from God in that moment. But if we take our biblical theology seriously, and Paul talks about this in, in his remarks in Athens, even though that one bush was visibly on fire, a flame that needed no fuel sort of way of revealing God's presence. In a real way, every bush is on fire. Every part of this world is filled with the presence of God if we have but the eyes to see him and recognize him. And that's one of the beautiful things that I think Jesus reveals in the Gospels and tries to get his followers to understand is that this is a God with us world. And even the ordinary things that you overlook every day, like that person on the side of the road who's been begging every day at the temple gate, or that child that's you know only got a few fish and loaves, or, or that woman who's been bleeding for 12 years that everybody ignores, all these ordinary things that are all around you can be divine encounters where you can see God more clearly, where you can where he reveals himself to us in unexpected ways if we would have but the eyes to see. And so a lot of what, the role of the Spirit is in our lives, and the, the great gift of the Holy Scriptures is that they partner in helping to renew our minds and our imaginations, to see the God who's always with us in everything we do, and to recognize His presence in a way we hadn't before, which transforms ordinary activities in life and ordinary things that we think are distracting us from God, and transforms them into means of communing with Him. Some of us find that easier than others in, in certain activities, but it, you know, it's remarkable when you meet somebody who's actually learning to commune with God in all of life rather than just when they're alone in their prayer closet on their knees. It's good and valuable. By all means, do that. But what does it mean to commune with God when you're mowing the grass? And what does it mean to commune with God when you're eating a meal or when you're playing with your child or when you're sitting at a computer and working? It is possible. It's Thomas Kelly referred to this as simultaneity, to live your life on two levels at the same time, to be actively engaged in what's happening in the world and simultaneously be in deep communion with God. That's how you convert what we think of as distractions into actual vehicles of communion. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. 
Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. You mentioned about encountering Jesus and the people that we would ordinarily overlook. There are a lot of people for whom that's a terrifying reality. Hmm. Because when they come to, for instance, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, as you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. And there's this separating out of sheep into goats. And a lot of people are thinking, well... I don't know who all the people are that I'm ignoring. How, how, how do yeah, I yeah. really know that I'm not going to be really surprised at judgment? Great question. You know, there's the, in, in the Anglican tradition, in the Book of Common Prayer, there's a confession that most Anglicans will say every Sunday when they gather. And it's a confession that includes the statement, forgive us our sins, what we have done and what we have left undone. In mm-hmm. other words, there are sins of commission, the things I deliberately do that are against God's will and character, and then there are just the things I neglect to do, which are part of his character and, and kingdom that I don't do. So there's an acknowledgement that, yeah, we we need to regularly take stock of our own sin. And it's not just the things we do. It's the things we've left undone. It's the people that we pass in our lives without ever recognizing that they're made in the image of God and they bear the presence of God. And I am to love and care for them as if they are my Lord. We all fail to do that, but it's an acknowledgement that we fail to do that, a, a humbleness to recognize I'm not reaching what I am called to be and to rely on the mercy of God in that. I think what's remarkable about that Matthew 25 story, neither the sheep nor the goats is, as they're divided, and neither of them think that they've been serving Jesus, right? They've That's both right. done all these yeah. things and they didn't recognize the presence of Christ in any of the people that they either served or, or failed to serve. Yeah. But I think the lesson I take from that is the sheep, the ones who did serve, you know, the naked and the sick and the prisoners and the, and the lost and the hungry, they had an integrated faith, meaning their commitment to Christ permeated into all the different areas of their life, including how they treated their neighbor and neglected. Whereas the goats, those who didn't serve others, had a disintegrated faith. They could proclaim perhaps good doctrine or they could say they belong to Christ, but they kept that walled off from other areas of their life and activity. You talk about in the book, The Miracles of Jesus. How did they relate to heaven? Yeah, I forget which theologian it was. It talked about these miracles as being signposts pointing to, to the kingdom of heaven. The way I would articulate it is as miraculous as many of those stories are, in a way, they're not miracles in the sense that they are violations of natural order. And a different way of thinking about it is they're actually the restoration of the order God always intended. That this world, through the influence of evil and sin, is broken and doesn't operate the way God intended it to operate. And Jesus comes along and he starts to make it operate the way it's supposed to operate. And that's a sign of of heaven, that what God wants done on earth is now being done the way it is in heaven. He wants the hungry fed. He wants the lame healed. He wants the blind to see and the deaf to hear. And and those who are excluded from communion with him and his people brought back into fellowship through restoration and healing. All those miracles that Jesus does is simply putting the world back 
to rights. And sometimes he does that in, in dramatic and powerful displays of power. And sometimes it's very subtle. It's, it's, I love this story in, in, in Acts where Peter and John are going into the temple and they pass that man who is begging, that lame beggar. And he's, it says he's put there every day. And the first thing Peter says to this man before he heals him physically with that wonderful miracle is he simply says to the man, look at us. And I'm sure you've traveled to parts of the world where there's a lot of poverty. A lot of people have been taught through their religious tradition and in India, it's through Hinduism and karma and things that if you are in a state of poverty, homelessness or illness and disease, it's because somehow you deserve it. Mm. And therefore the people on the street will often keep their head down because it's a posture of shame and they won't look you in the eye because you, you know, an able-bodied wealthy person clearly are being blessed for your righteousness. So they won't look at you. So when Peter says to this beggar, this lame man, look at us, he's, he's beginning his healing already by restoring the man's dignity by simply making eye contact with him. And that's a non-miraculous, but nonetheless significant sign of heaven's healing, that things are being restored to the way they should be by simply giving a person back their God-ordained dignity. And so... Miracles are great. I'm, I'm not a cessationist. I believe they happen. But we also have to recognize that the kingdom of God is also manifested in what we would consider non-miraculous ways whenever justice is done, healing, dignity, restoration of relationship, forgiveness, all of those things are also the work of heaven on earth. Hmm. I can just imagine an atheist friend of mine who I'm going to be talking to tomorrow, but who, if he were here, what he would say is, well, if Jesus is restoring things to the way that they should be through his miracles, why doesn't he do it? And, and my atheist friend might say, you know, we were just talking about the people that we ignore and the, the sins that we have committed by not doing what we ought to have done. And most people in the AD 20s and 30s were not healed. And most people today are not healed. So how can you and I think about heaven and talk about heaven when that's the case? Yeah, that's a good question. Many people have made this argument before, but even yeah. where there are miraculous healings and including the people in the gospels in the book of Acts who were miraculously healed, they all died again. They all, they all died at some point, right? The healing wasn't, physical healing was not in perpetuity. So the reality is, and this is where I think the, the Christian message and the Christian gospel maps onto our reality. It does not deny the brokenness and fallenness of this world. It doesn't deny the reality of death. Death is not an illusion. It is very real. Disease and, and brokenness is very real. On the flip side, you look at you know a book like Dominion by, by Tom Holland, talks about the influence of Christianity on world history and the way that the church has brought healing, deep healing to society through the creation of hospitals and universities. Human dignity in Western civilization, at least, is deeply indebted to Christian faith. It just didn't exist before that. So a lot of the things we have improved upon in society over the last 2000 years is the direct result of Christianity believing in the restoration of the dignity of people and societies and even the advancements of medicine and, and education, the, the dignity of women in society, all these things are the direct result of Jesus and his message of bringing the, the values of the kingdom of heaven to earth. 
You talk about in the book the evangelistic tracks that people would have in the in the uh, programs that that many of us were trained in in evangelism that starts with the question, if you were to die tonight, what would happen to you? And you argue that's not the best way to go. Why not? I think the problem with it is it's not the way the gospel's presented by the apostles. There are multiple gospel sermons in the book of Acts where the gospels preached and proclaimed to different audiences, and not once do the apostles ask anybody, where are you going to be when you die? Never once do they mention an afterlife in hell or, for that matter, an afterlife in heaven. It's just not part of the gospel they preached. I'm not saying those doctrines aren't legitimate or they don't have any foundation in the New Testament. I think they do, but it wasn't central to the proclamation of the gospel that the apostles preached. And if heaven and hell are so central to our gospel proclamation, but it wasn't to theirs, we need to ask why. What's changed or how have we departed and what has led us on that different understanding of the gospel than from what we see in the book of Acts? Well, there is judgment, uh, the one who will come to, to judge through one man, Acts 17, and Paul's preaching. And of course, John's preaching, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. So it's, it's right. there. Yeah, but that's, I think there's a difference between judgment, which is intrinsic. I mean, Jesus, God was judging sin on the cross. So that's, that mm -hmm. is core to the gospel proclamation. But that's different from what's my address in the afterlife. And I think part of the dilemma there is, and this is sort of central thesis of my book, a lot of modern Christians have a heaven-centric understanding of their faith. They believe that the entire goal of Christianity is to get to heaven when you die, and Jesus is a means by which that journey is accomplished. I would say that's got it a little bit wrong, because if the centerpiece of our gospel and the centerpiece of our faith isn't Jesus himself, then we've got it off, off base. And if we've merely reduced him as a means to get what I really want, which is avoiding the flames or getting that mansion on a gold street somewhere, then we've reduced Jesus to a means to some other end. And that's not the gospel he or his apostles preach. So all I'm saying is I think we need to return Jesus to the centerpiece of our gospel. He is the goal, not just the means by which we achieve our goal. And too often we've made heaven a goal when the apostles themselves did not. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place.
So what, in your view, happens to a person when he or she dies? It's it's (laughs) a moment of death right now. That is a good question. Well, as Paul says, to be away from the body is to be with the Lord. And there's been volumes and volumes and volumes written about what exactly does that mean. I feel dumb telling you this, Russell, because you know this better than I do, but theologians refer to this as the intermediate state, meaning our our bodies have died, but the resurrection has not yet happened. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Jesus returning and we will be given new bodies, resurrected and share in, in his glory. In that in-between time is the intermediate state. So what happens to a Christian who dies between their death and the resurrection? That's the intermediate state. All scripture really says is that we will be with the Lord. Now, some people say that means in a spiritual sense, we will be awake and conscious and in communion with God and the saints in some way. Others say, no, it's just kind of a euphemism Paul's using. And we're actually in what theologians refer to as soul sleep, where it's a non-conscious existence where our next waking moment will actually be the resurrection. But until then, we are in Christ's care. We are not going to be lost in any way. I don't know other than to say we are with the Lord and there's nothing to fear. Nothing can ever separate us from his love, as Paul says in Romans 8, not even death. So we are with him. Now, that's the fate of those who belong to Christ. The fate of those who do not belong to Christ, it's actually what my next book is going to be about. What if Jesus was serious about justice? We can get into that if you want, but that's a preview. Well, it's a it's an important question. What mm-hmm. about hell? There are, I uh, heard uh, some public figure saying not long ago, I'm really not scared of death. I'm just scared if there is a hell. This is somebody who's yeah. not a believer. And, and I think that's an entirely rational question to ask. So it what is, is hell? Terrible thing to fall into the hands of a wrathful God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean... I think this is one of those doctrines that you can't escape either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The judgment of God, the good and righteous judgments of the Lord, it's just an inescapable part of the scriptures from beginning to end. And I think, let me put it this way. I think scripture is clear that there is proportional punishment based on our sins. Each person will be judged according to what they have done. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 3 when it comes to the believer, that our works will be judged for what we have done. And those who have built with wood, hay, and straw, their works will be burned up. They themselves will be saved, but their works will be destroyed. But those who've built with gold, silver, precious stones, it will endure and they will be praised. So there's proportional reward for the righteous. And I think there is proportional punishment for the wicked, that those who have done more wickedness will face greater wrath than those who have done less. But it's not a good thing to go before the Lord in your sins, not trusting him and Christ to have paid the price for them, you then pay the price for your own sins. And it will be proportional. And yes, it is a terrible fate. And I think that's why those warnings you mentioned from Acts, you know, avoiding the the wrath that is to come. I don't have any good way of just conveniently erasing those things from the Bible. They're there. But I still think, like heaven, we have imported some cultural traditions in our view of judgment and God's justice in hell that I would also argue are not on solid biblical foundations, but you can't just erase it. It's there. What about the rewards? I have my own views, but what are what are yours? What is the Bible talking about when it talks about rewarding? 
people, people being judged according to their works. There are a lot of people really confused by that because it says, does this mean, is this like trophies? You've got the guy walking around with a big crown and then there's somebody <laughs> with a medium sized crown. What, what, what's going on there? Yeah, that's a good question. Again, I, I wouldn't like, you know, build a whole denomination around what I'm about to say. It's not, <laughs> it's not like it's beyond debate. So I, I think we have to go begin with what is the ultimate destiny for those who are who belong to God. And Revelation's clear on this. And even it's rooted all the way back in Genesis. Why did God create humanity in the first place? We were created that we would rule the earth with him as his representatives on the earth. And Revelation talks about how we will reign with Christ on earth. So our, our purpose in being made in God's image and created in the first place and our purpose in being redeemed is that we might reign with him on the earth. That idea of reigning or ruling, however, doesn't mean that everyone has an equal expanse of authority or an equal expanse over which they rule and reign. And so Jesus talks about in some of his parables, you know, the, the, the servant who's faithful with little will be given more and the one who's faithful with much will be given even more than that. So there's a a sense in which in this present age, we are entrusted with all kinds of things and we are to manage those things as a disciple of Jesus, that we would reign over those things we have authority over as he would reign over them and increasingly learn how to do that in preparation for our reigning with him in the age to come, in the new heaven and earth. And those who have been most faithful in the way they reign with Christ here will be given even more to reign over in the age to come. And those who are very unfaithful in what they are given to reign over in this age will have less to reign over in the age to come. And that that violates some of our American egalitarianism that says, oh, everyone should be equal. There shouldn't be any stratification or ranking in a perfected world. But that's not really the image we get in the scriptures. We do get an image that some are closer to the throne and some are further and some have reign over more and some reign over less. And so that's why our, our actions in this world and our faithfulness to God in this life really do matter for eternity. I often think about T.S. Eliot in Four Quartets talks about the, the hints and guesses, those, those little flashes when it, it seems that you perceive behind the veil a little bit more than, than you ordinarily do. Uh, when do you feel closest to heaven? This is not what most people would probably expect me to say, but I really feel close to heaven when I'm around little children. Hmm. And I'm not like, nobody sees me as you know, the, the Sunday school nursery kind of worker person, but I, I find the, the beauty, the innocence, the curiosity of children to just be such a, an unadulterated glimpse into God and his playfulness and his, and his hmm. wonderment that I, I, I suspect that's a little bit about why Jesus said, you know, don't suffer the children unto me. Like there's something good here and you must become like a little child. So we're a part of a house church now. And there's a family in particular that has younger toddler age kids. And when they're in our midst and while we're studying scripture, singing songs or taking communion, I just, I feel closer to God just having those kids in the space with us. That's a big one. And then the, just the way I'm wired, I love learning. And so as I travel or I learn new things, I, I feel, feel like I'm given more a glimpse of the wonder of what God has put into this incredible world he's made. And that makes a thin place for me where I see some. And then last one I'll add is when I meet people 
who are engaged in what they were clearly put on the earth to do. Mm. One example, when my kids were younger, they had a teacher in elementary school who earlier in his career had been an investment banker or stockbroker, some financial thing. And for whatever reason, didn't like that and switched to become a third grade elementary school teacher. And I used to volunteer in the classroom from time to time. And I would watch him teach third graders. And it was just so evident that that's why he was put on this earth. <laughs> like mm. He was here to teach third graders. And so when you see an artist who's really gifted at what they do, when you see a chef making something delicious and beautiful, when you see a teacher teaching really kindly and with passion and understanding, like those moments draw me closer to my creator, where I get an, a glimpse of what God intended the world to be. And you see people who are flourishing in their humanness. And in some way, I get a clearer vision of who God is in those moments. And I'm, I'm inspired to worship. Hmm. You co-host The Holy Post uh, every week. I am a listener to that podcast. Love it. And I'm wondering, uh, what's the hardest part and the best part about doing The Holy Post every week? I think the best part for me is, you know, in my whatever, how has it long been? It's like 30 years of some kind of ministry involvement. The Holy Post feels like the first place where I can be my full self. Hmm. And what I mean by that is hopefully people who listen to it regularly find it to be somewhat intelligent and insightful. And we have wonderful guests on like you and others, but it's also goofy and kind mm -hmm. of funny at times. And that's an aspect of, of who I am and definitely who Phil is that I haven't really been allowed to express as much. I couldn't do that when I was writing for Leadership Journal all the time. And I couldn't do that when I was preaching every week. I mean, sometimes people saw my humor come out a little bit in the pulpit, but not regularly. And it wasn't welcomed. So I feel like for me, the best part is I can fully express my quirkiness and the things I enjoy and my curiosity and the love for learning along with all the, the, the silliness. So that's my favorite part of it. Hardest part, goodness, you, you know this better than I do, Russell. Again, like when you are doing anything publicly, you open yourself up for a lot of criticism. And I'm not going to cry about that. It's I'm, No one's forcing me to do this. I'm choosing to. But sometimes it, it's hard and I have to guard myself against two extremes. One is taking every criticism too seriously. And then the other extreme is not hearing it enough, you know, sh shutting myself down to being open to some of that legitimate critique that I should um, receive and, and allow correction in my life. So that's hard when you're that public to, to take it both. I mean, you could talk a lot longer than I could about what it's like to be on the receiving that, end of fair and unfair that's never, criticism. That's never happened to me. I, uh, uh, yeah, I can't imagine. Everybody love, who could not love me? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I love you, Russell. I'm glad you're, you're here. The, the first time that I was ever on the Holy Post in its previous iteration, right after uh, Donald Trump had said that I was a nasty uh, man with no heart, mm -hmm. and Phil pulled out a ukulele and uh, wrote a song about that mean tweet and sang it. <laughs> and I, I will never forget that. Well, I hope that brought a little levity to a dark moment for you. But um, yeah, I mean, and that's part of yeah. what we're trying to do with the Holy Post is we we want to inspire people to live faithfully with Christ in, in these strange times we are in. But we also want people to know that they can do that without resorting to just anger and fear. Like yeah. we, we take the gospel and, and faith seriously. 
we don't take ourselves seriously. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's the balance we're trying to strike. And I think if, if more of the church were able to take communion with Christ and, and living out his calling in our lives in the world very seriously, but do it with a joyfulness, maybe you would change things for the better. As the late Jimmy Buffett put it, if we couldn't laugh, we would all go insane. There you go. Yeah, I think that's true. Sky Jathani, who is the author of What If Jesus Was Serious About Heaven? Check it out. There is a lot uh, in there. It's a small book. It'll, it's uh, quick uh, to read, but a lot packed into that small book. Sky, thanks for being with us today. I love being here. Thank you, Russell. I'm uh, grateful for the opportunity. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host, Russell Moore. Producer, Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azure Phelps. Director of Operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio engineering is provided by Dan Phelps. Our video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.